Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 133, The History of Europe, part 7. So, in the words of Phil Collins, one more night, listeners, just one more night. We've had a good hack at the history of Europe over the last couple of weeks, but we still have some notable areas to cover today. The exotic East in the main, and a new player into our story, and also a few bits and bobs about our nearest and dearest neighbour, La France. But before we start on all that, let's briefly talk about Scandinavia, once the centre of our world and now, sadly, barely getting an honourable mensch. Well, honourable mensch, here we come. Through the 13th century, Denmark established its control along the Baltic shore, particularly on what became the Duchy of Estonia. Sweden expanded through the northern crusades into Finland to the east, while in the North Sea, Iceland's Commonwealth came to an agreement called the Old Covenant with Norway in 1262 after which it came under the Norwegian crown. The main pressure on the Scandinavian states came, of course, from the south, in the form of the Hans Towns and the Teutonic Knights. From 1346, indeed, the Danish Duchy of Estonia became the possession of the Teutonic Knights. Denmark, Sweden and Norway all faced the challenge to their territorial integrity and control of trade from the towns of the Hans, and as a result, the monarchies worked to bring all three Scandinavian countries together under one crown. Which, impressively, they achieved in 1397 through the Union of Kalmar. Under the Union, each of the countries was ruled according to their own institutions and law, but foreign relations were dictated by the joint monarch. It was to prove a troubled existence. Sweden continually kicked against what they saw as a Danish dominance and external aggression. The nobility constantly challenged the rights of the crown, but it was to survive until the 16th century. Now, I don't think up to now we've mentioned Russia at all, so a quick backstep. In the 10th to the 12th centuries, we have a period broadly called the Kievan Rus period, which came to an abrupt, painful and destructive end with the appearance of the Mongols in 1237-40. to Thereafter, the Golden Horde exacted tribute and carried out raids across Russia, but some principalities retained some independence. Novgorod, for example, in the north, had the strength under Prince Alexander Nevsky to defeat both the invading Swedes and the Teutonic Knights and retain their autonomy. The Mongol invasion had also swept large numbers of people into the lands of the Rus, who were given land but no special rights. As a result, the existence of a subclass of serfs would exist within Russia for much longer than Western Europe, and there was no strong regional history. Another principality that grew was that of Moscow, playing a clever game of paying off the Mongols when needful and playing them off against other principalities when they could. Moscow had many natural advantages, 
such as access to a vast forest hinterland that yielded fur for trade, and its situation at a natural confluence of river trade routes between the Black and Caspian Seas. In 1380, the Grand Prince of Moscow, Dmitry Donsk, won a landmark battle against the Mongols at Kulikovo. There is much dispute about the relevance of the victory. It didn't end the Golden Horde's control, for example. But historians hate it or loathe it. For the Russians, it's a symbol of the first steps before liberation. Not just from the Golden Horde, but also against Christian states from the West, such as the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, which was allied to the Mongol side at the time. And spare a thought for a chap called Brannock, who wore Prince Dmitri's armour at the battle and as a result was pummeled by Mongol arrows until he died. Top tip for all of you out there, if some rich prince offers you their shiny armour just before a big battle, just say no. Anyway, despite setbacks, Moscow's power began to grow, especially as the Golden Horde itself was weakened by a chap we'll talk about a bit later, called Tima the Lane. Okie dokes. Now, staying very broadly in the East, let's talk about the remains of the Roman Empire, Byzantium. There is a massive problem of hindsight when it comes to Byzantium. Looking back, it's easy to see that Byzantium was Christendom's bulwark against the spread of Islam. Now the talk in the West about crusade and the ambition to fight the infidel fell off not one jot with the fall of Acre and the end of Outremer in 1291. Richard II wanted to go on crusade, at the same time as he was slapping the hands of the Byzantine emperor away from his money box. Henry V saw the wars in France as just a precursor to a crusade. The West talked about the threat of the Turk and felt deeply about the need to hold back the tide of Islam and free the holy places as they saw it. But somehow Western Christendom didn't see Byzantium as a state that needed to be nurtured and protected and supported. Not a bit of it. To some in the church, they were just splitters, worse even than the Judean popular front. As Byzantium fell on hard times, with the Ottoman Turks trying to stick a knife between their ribs, the Pope did his level best to exploit their distress and weakness and bring the Orthodox Church into line as subordinate to the Latin Church of Rome. Others saw gold. Venice and Genoa fought tooth and nail over the dying body of the goose, never thinking that if the goose died, maybe it'd take the golden egg with it. Though maybe that's the point. In the end, the traders didn't really care whether the guys trading with them in Constantinople were Muslim or Christian, as long as they had money. It's a question of two brains. And one of the brains was a fervent desire for the triumph of Christ's word and all that sort of thing. And the other was a desire to make money and get on. There was just no channel between the two brains. Others saw a land of opportunity, the chance to cut up the decaying carcass of an old empire and carve out a kingdom or dukedom for yourself. And added to this, really, no one trusted the Byzantines. In more ways than one, Byzantium was where East met West. They were just different there, complex, subtle, devious. So this is where the hindsight comes in. We can see now that if the objective was the greater glory of Christendom, facing up to the challenge of the Turk was pretty crucial. But at the time, no one could quite understand the challenge, or understand the dynamic that would take the Ottomans to the very walls of Vienna. There were voices sounding the alarm, to be fair, the popes often, but no one could quite resist 
going for the prize right in front of them first. We left Byzantium in a dreadful mess, really. After the sack of Constantinople, the Greeks had managed to salvage something from the wreckage in the form of three small empires. Two of them in Anatolia, i.e. modern Turkey, where there was one centred on Nicaea and one on Trebizond on the Black Sea coast. And then there was the so-called Despotate of Epirus on the Adriatic coast. A Western emperor had been installed in Constantinople, but even that hadn't been done properly. Various states had emerged in the pre-1204 empire's territories in Greece, and in the Balkans only one quarter of the land that remained was given to the new Latin emperor, the rest was given to Venice and the knights who had sacked the place. And so the result was a Latin empire constantly struggling for the resources to survive. You might well ask how on earth the empire survived in any form. After all, they'd been losing Anatolia to the Seljuk Turks anyway. Why weren't they just swept away in this weakened state? To answer that question, we had to go further back and further east, to a tent by a river in eastern Siberia in 1162, and a chap called Temujin. Little Temujin grew into Genghis Khan, who led the Mongols as they slaughtered and destroyed their way across the world, until he died in 1227. The Mongols reached Hungary. They also reached Syria. And in so doing, they shattered the power of the Seljucid Turks before they were defeated by the Mamluks of Egypt and sent packing. But it all meant that for much of the 13th century, Islam in the Near East was divided, though not so divided as to stop the fall of Acre to the Mamluks in 1291. The empire's John Connor was a chap called Michael Paleologus, the man who would give the Greek Empire another 200 years of life, though a life dominated by desperate scrabbling for survival. The glory days of the empire were now well and truly behind them. Michael was a usurper, a general who took the throne of Nicaea from the eight-year-old heir, a boy called John, making himself co-emperor. And as far as thrones, kings and emperors are concerned, two is a crowd and there's really no such thing as good company, as little John would one day find out. In 1259, Michael won a key battle at Pelagonia on the European mainland, defeating the Greek despot of Epirus and the prince of Achaea. Achaea was a new Latin state in Greece. It was the very last appearance, incidentally, of the Varangian Guard but the victory showed that the Byzantines could still win and it meant Michael could now attack Constantinople with no one threatening his rear. And in 1261 he duly did that and retook Constantinople. The Latin emperor fled, never to return. Little heir and co-ruler John was blinded on the age-old Byzantine principle that a physically imperfect man could not be emperor. By which measure, incidentally, I remain a genuine contender. Michael was far from universally successful. He failed, for example, to reconquer all the Latin states in Greece. But when he died in 1285, the empire at least had the potential to be viable. It held northern and western Anatolia and a swathe of land in the southern Balkans and had managed to get back some of southern Greece. In fact, the main threat to Michael's survival came not from the Turks in Anatolia, as you might think, but from Charles of Anjou in Sicily. The reality of the Angevin threat was demonstrated by the agreements that Michael put in place 
to protect Byzantium against him. The first was a treaty with Genoa that gave Genoa massive trading concessions throughout the empire for a paltry 50 ships, which the empire then had to pay for. Though fair dues, Michael used this time by starting to build a new Byzantine fleet of its own to regain their independence. But maybe the second one was the real measure of the level of Michael's concern. It was a nuclear option. To try to persuade the Pope not to support Charles of Anjou, Michael agreed in 1274 to submit the Greek Church to the authority of the Roman Pope. Now, when I say nuclear, for the Byzantines, this is thermonuclear, a definition of their nationhood that they'd fought for over the last 200 years. And stunningly, Pope Martin went for supporting Charles of Anjou instead, and once again, the West undervalued how important Byzantium was to them. As a nice example of the basic weakness, though, of the Byzantine Empire, let me tell you about the life and times of a bunch of Catalan mercenaries around this time. The Byzantine emperor of the time, Andronicus, decided to employ them as mercenaries. The Byzantines were much reliant on mercenaries given their lack of manpower, but also because they were chary of employing a standing army, which was just as likely to be used as part of their frequent and bloody dynastic squabbles as anything else. So, in 1302, the Catalans reached Constantinople and did a pretty good job fighting the Turks in Anatolia for which they'd been employed. Then, unfortunately, they fell out with their employers, and the Byzantines therefore attacked them to try to get rid of them. So the Catalans did a nice piece of coat-turning and teamed up with the Turks they'd just been beating up, and together they went on a pillaging spree within the empire. When that was done, they hopped over to Greece and took up service with the French Duke of Athens. Sadly, he didn't have the readies to pay them either, and so the Duke attacked them which didn't turn out well for him, as you might expect, since the Duke gained only the silver medal in that competition and ended up dead, leaving the Catalans in control of the duchy. They then extended that duchy north into Thessaly until the Serbians took it from them. I mean, it's chaos, really. A patchwork of different nations. During the 14th century also, we see the brief flowering of a powerful Serbian kingdom in, under Stephen Duzan, which came as far south as northern Greece at its height. But when Duzan the Mighty died in 1355, that all fell apart. Further north, those Angevins, a branch of the same family that held Sicily for a while, got their hands on Hungary. And through the 14th century, Hungary grew and prospered, and also cast covetous eyes at Constantinople, as well as the Balkan states between them. But the Romanians, Moldovans and Bulgars, who occupied those nations, were Orthodox, not Catholic like Hungary, so they resisted for all they were worth. And in 1382, a new king of Hungary, Sigismund, faced the world with a weakened kingdom that no longer included Poland as it had done before. So as I say, it's chaos, a patchwork of kingdoms and tribes where once there had been some kind of unity. And potentially it's not difficult to see the weakness of this patchwork of states as a bulwark against the Turks when compared to the older, more integrated Byzantine version. Now, it's not that the West had forgotten the idea of fighting the infidel and the concept of crusade. In fact, there are a few crusades in the 14th century. In 1365, an expedition managed to take Alexandria in Egypt 
for the sum total of a week. There was a lovely invasion of Tunisia by the Genoese and the French together. The French were there for God and glory. The Genoese were there for a nice fat trade deal, and once they had that, off they hopped and left the French to hurry home before they were massacred. Really, for unreliability and mixed motives, read the history of Genoa and Venice. It's a hoot. Just a good thing there were no used cars around at the time. They'd have had a field day. So there were lots of crusades, but so often they ended up being misdirected. There are the absurdities of the crusades declared by popes against their anti-pope opponents. Or the crusade which the Byzantines directed against the Wallachians, all of whom were Christian. The Muslim world was there to be traded with and allied with and fought with, just like all the Christian states. And all of that messed up the old singleness of purpose of Urban's 11th century concept. One of the tribes that fled before Genghis Khan's brutal onslaught took up residence in the Seljuk Sultanate of Iconium and did useful service for the Seljuks. They came to be known as the Ottoman Turks. In 1300, the Seljuks fell to pieces and the Ottoman leader Osman declared a separate independent Ottoman state. Osman's son Orkan then expanded the state along the Aegean shores. And on the way, he established a corps of soldiers that would become famous and feared throughout Europe, the Janissaries. The Janissary Corps was a corps formed from the captured young children of conquered Christians. They were drilled from an early age in the Muslim faith and the art of fighting. They made a celibate, devoted standing army, highly expert and totally loyal to their sultan. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There is a wonderful or rather tragic symmetry about the Ottomans' entry into Europe. In 1341, a Byzantine general decided to usurp the throne in one of those tiresomely predictable Byzantine coups, and he enlisted the Ottomans in an attack on Europe. The Ottoman army brought back such a pile of treasure that they knew there was more there for the taking, and duly in 1354 the Ottomans attacked and seized Gallipoli on the European side. In 1366, the Byzantines actually managed to talk the Venetians and Genoese into helping them get rid of the Ottomans. But the strain of trying to do the right thing proved way too much for the rival cities, and they ended up fighting each other instead of the Ottomans. Neat. And now the Ottomans were out of prison, they drove through the pathetic remnants of Greek kingdoms and created their own state north of the Bosphorus. The Ottoman state was an intensely Ghazi state. That is, the primary mission of their state was fighting for and spreading the rule of Islam. As a Ghazi nation, they drew in faithful from other emirates, which gave them the manpower they needed to help them grow. As they grew, initially they offered a level of autonomy for the conquered state, but before long this vassal state would find themselves eliminated and drawn into direct rule. 
Another key thing they did as soon as they took over a new territory was to do a detailed survey that helped clarify taxation and legal landholding and then allowed them to allocate specific lands for the maintenance of the army for the next round of conquests. There's a lot of myth about the rule of the Ottomans, how it was full of religious tolerance and love and peace and justice, and it's easy to take this too far. Because let's not mess about, Christians were second-class citizens. Under the annual Jeff Sherm, a levy of 7-10-year-old boys was taken from the Christians. They went through the same process as the Janissaries and became administrators and civil servants. Though this was against Islamic law, the Ottomans saw it as a way of combating the power of their Turkish nobility through a non-sectarian, totally loyal and professional civil service. Equally characteristic of the absolutist Ottoman rule were the mass deportations. Albanians, Serbs and Greeks were transferred en masse to Anatolia, Anatolians to Thrace and Bulgaria. However, if you compare the history of religious tolerance in Ottoman lands to those in Christendom, there's not much competition. Despite significant disadvantages, the Ottomans allowed the existing landed classes to carry on as part of the state. They might fight in their armies. Taxation was lighter than under Byzantine rule. They allowed the non-Muslim legal systems to coexist, though under the ultimate authority of Muslim law. Now, maybe for the Ottomans there was no choice. After all, their empire was composed of a Christian majority ruled by a Muslim minority, probably until the 19th century. And there's no doubt that the Christian states that opposed them fought tooth and nail not to become part of the Ottoman Empire. But nonetheless, it could have been worse. And it's equally clear that in pretty much every way the Ottomans presented a more effective proposition than the states that faced them. Better administration, better military organisation, better led, with a clear and focused vision. The Ottomans looked unstoppable. And then in 1380, the Ottoman Sultan Morad moved into Serbian territory. In 1381 and 1386, the Serbian King Lazar defeated large Ottoman armies. In 1388, a tiny Bosnian army of 7,000 defeated an Ottoman army of 18,000, and the myth of Ottoman invincibility had been shaken. Maybe they'd met their match. Maybe this was where the tide ended. But in 1389, Sultan Murad tried again with a massive army of at least 27,000, and he struck for Kosovo, at the heart of the Serbian kingdom. There Lazar waited for him with an army of maybe 12,000, drawn from Serbians, Bosnians and Albanians, along with the Knights Hospitaller. The Battle of Kosovo was a close-fought thing. Both wings of the Christian army remained intact against the Ottoman onslaught. The losses on both sides were very high. But in the end, the Christians were forced from the field. A Serbian nobleman pretended to desert to the Turkish side, but then drew a dagger and, before the horrified guards could move, had slashed Murad from throat to belly and left him dead in a mass of blood and guts. But unfortunately for the Christians, King Lazar had also lost his life. And although the Battle of Kosovo is a symbol of Serbian nationalism, in fact it led to the loss of the entire area south of Hungary to the Ottomans. Morad had two sons to carry on the fight, Bezid and Yakub. 
Bezid sent a note to Yakub saying that Dad had a job before him. Would he come quick? When Yakub arrived, Bezid had him strangled. Brotherly love was not a feature of the Ottoman royal story. Bezid reduced the rest of the Byzantine lands and besieged Constantinople in 1396. Hungary panicked, whipped up a storm, and in Western Europe the talk was once again all about crusade, with Pope Boniface proclaiming crusade in 1394. From all over Western Europe the cream of Shahori came to King Sigismund of Hungary's call, and the army that marched to relieve Constantinople contained Germans, Wallachians, Hungarians, but most significantly the French. The French were led by John, son of the Duke of Burgundy, and our friend the famous knight of High Shahori, Bukikor. The French were in full throttle, pain in the ass. we know best, the Ottomans are losers and will be a pushover in the face of the great French heroes mode, reminiscent of the worst days of Cressy, Poitiers and Agincourt to come. Driven by tales of chivalry rather than good sense. Daft things like rushing ahead overnight to get to attack a fortress first and then having to wait for the main Hungarian force anyway. Or watching Sigismund agree the surrender of a fortress on terms and then breaking the agreement and sacking the place for good measure. At length the Crusaders besieged the key fortress of Nicopolis and did indeed achieve the objective of drawing Bayezid from his siege of Constantinople. In the ensuing battle, the French refused to work with Sigismund's battle plan they knew best, and they charged the Ottoman line, scattering the untrained cannon fodder at the front, and for a while it looked as though French Brio had won a magnificent victory for Christendom. But the men they had scattered was just that, untrained cannon fodder. They became separated from the main body of the army, surrounded by the stronger groups behind, and forced abjectly to surrender. The main Ottoman army then attacked the remnants of the Crusader army, and the result was a slaughter. Sigismund himself escaped, but for the rest, it did not go so well. The big boys of the French side, including, incidentally, John and Bukikor, were eventually ransomed. Most of those who fled the battlefield died of hunger and exhaustion, though some made it home. Famously, Count Rupert of Bavaria arrived home in rags and died a few days afterwards. As per normal, the ordinary prisoners were not so lucky. Bayezid set up a platform on which he sat and invited the 20 noble French who were going to be ransomed to sit with him. In front of their eyes, one by one, the prisoners were brought forward. Some were beheaded, Others had their limbs cut off until they died. At the end of the afternoon, the remainder were forced to walk naked to Gallipoli and into slavery. The defeat at Nicopolis in 1396 should by rights have spelt the end of Constantinople, Wallachia and probably Hungary. That it didn't was due to another Ghazi warrior born near the city of Kesh in modern-day Uzbekistan. Tima the Lame dreamt of restoring Genghis Khan's empire, and over years of brutal destruction killed millions while he did so in true Genghis style and rubbed out the Nestorian Church of the East as he did. In 1399, his hideously destructive war of conquest came to the Ottoman Empire, and in 1402, 
Bezid himself was defeated at Ankara and died in captivity. His death started a vicious Ottoman civil war that gave Constantinople 50 more years of life. But we are now very close to the dreadful date of 1453. It's a tragedy, folks, the culmination of centuries of Western stupidity, myopia and greed. With a fair contribution, it has to be said, from the Byzantines themselves. OK, so that brings you pretty much up to date with medieval Europe, with the exception of France. You know, most of it has to be said from the main narrative, but I think it's worth covering a couple of things we've skated over. The madness of Charles VI, his uncles and their regency, and the start of the rise of Burgundy. Charles was only 11 when he became king in 1380, and during his regency for the next eight years, he was dominated by his royal uncles, particularly Philip, Duke of Burgundy, and the Duke of Anjou. French politics at the time were poisonous, and driven by a struggle for power between the uncles, reversing many of Charles V's policies. Then in 1388, Charles VI announced his majority, and although he was no genius, he reappointed his father's advisers and all seemed well. But then in 1392, on the way to Brittany, Charles suffered a bout of insanity. The bouts became longer and more serious as time went by, and when he was in their grip, he became completely incapable of making decisions. On one occasion, for example, he decided he was made of glass, with predictable pain and confusion. As time went by, the servants who changed his clothes had to be dressed as black-faced devils. In a way, it's the worst possible situation. There is a legitimate ruler, but he's incapacitated, and sometimes he's incapacitated, and sometimes he's capacitated. It was a licence for intrigue and politicking, and Anjou and Philip indulged fully in a vicious struggle for power. Both of them milked their relationship with Charles for all that it was worth. Philip of Burgundy gained 1.3 million livres from Charles in gifts alone. So despite England's own evident weakness at the time under Richard, France failed to take advantage. Philip of Burgundy came out better from the conflict, essentially ruling France until his death in 1404. His rule was bitterly resented by another royal duke, Louis, Duke of Orléans, Charles VI's younger brother, and ensure that the struggle would continue into the next generation. One event then became particularly significant, which was the marriage in 1369 between Philip and the daughter of Louis de Marle, Count of Flanders. Although the Count of Flanders Louis did have two sons, both were to die before he did, and therefore on his death Philip, known to history as Philip the Bold, passed a massive inheritance to his son, John the Fearless. Now at the time, acquiring all those lands in Burgundy, the Franche Comte, Flanders, Brabant, looked like an absolute coup for the French crown. But in fact, it made Philip the Bold and his dukedom of Burgundy dangerously powerful. In effect, it created a state within a state. As a result, the Orleanists, the supporters of the Duke of Orléans, and the supporters of John the Fearless, Duke of Burgundy, the Burgundians, went potty with power struggles. And into this was swept up the Dauphin, i.e. the French heir to the throne, who also happens to be named Charles inconveniently. We shall call this Charles the Dauphin from now on. The young Dauphin was kidnapped several times in a desperate attempt by both camps 
to control the future king, and potentially the regent once he gains his majority. In the process, all manner of stuff happened. The Queen, Isabel, was notoriously promiscuous, for example, and it could well have been that her brother-in-law, Louis of Orléans, was one of her lovers. Really, if we had time, we could spend a few episodes on it all. Never let it be said the French couldn't do scandal. Anyhow, in November 1407, Louis of Orléans and John the Fearless of Burgundy had a big public reconciliation, brokered by another of the royal uncles. Everything was nicey-nicey and fluffy. Then three days later, Louis of Orléans was in the streets of Paris with a small group of servants when he was attacked and brutally murdered by masked men. The men, it soon transpired, were employed by John the Fearless of Burgundy to do the dirty deed. And the most remarkable thing of all was that John didn't even have to deny it. In fact, he even published an article justifying what he'd done. Now, the next Duke of Orléans carried on the fight in no uncertain terms. He married the heiress of the powerful family of the Armagnac, whose name we've heard before, a family with wide lands and power throughout southwestern France. From then on, and indeed for much of the 15th century, France was divided between the Orleanists and their allies, the Armagnac, and the Burgundians, while in the middle sat the increasingly mad king, his son the Dauphin, and the desperately venal and extravagant queen, variously exercising power and having power exercised on them. For the English, opportunities would appear to exploit these divisions to their own advantage. So next time we'll get back to good old Blighty. As ever with a new reign, we'll spend a bit of time looking at the historiography of the reign and then talk about how Henry gets his feet under the royal table. So, thank you to a few donators this time. Philip, Simon, Maura, Mark, Adrian, Linda, Oak and Adam. Thank you all very much for your generosity. And thanks to everyone who comments on the website or iTunes or joins the Facebook group or indeed to all of you for listening. <laughs>